All right, should be recording now. So today I'm going to be doing something a little bit different. Rather than like a short video or an interview, I'm going to be hosting a debate on whether evil is strong evidence against God between Zach of Adherent Apologetics and Emerson Green. But before we dive in, I want to give each of you a chance to introduce yourselves. So let's start with you, Zach. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dustin. Um, my name's Zach. I have a YouTube channel, podcasted here in Apologetics. We just look at a bunch of things in like Christian philosophy or biblical studies or ethics um, and just keep asking big questions and looking at topics and occasionally hosting a debate or doing a response video. Um, but yeah, just exploring different ideas and having a lot of fun with it as we go. Um, so I, I've got a podcast called Counter Apologetics where I talk about like philosophy of religion and stuff. And I have another podcast called Walton Pod where I talk mostly about consciousness, I guess, and in some other stuff in philosophy. But, um, you know, philosophy of religion is sort of my main interest. So I've got one area just for that and then another area um, where I torture everyone with my musings about consciousness. And um, <laughs> yeah, you can see it on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or wherever. Okay. And I'll definitely share both links to your content, both of your content uh, in the description. And so the structure of this that we have all agreed to is that there's gonna be a 10 minute opening. Um, and we don't have to, you guys don't, you can use however much or little of the time you want. It doesn't necessarily have to go the full. So 10 minute opening, 10 minute rebuttal, and then we'll see where the discussion takes us, I guess. I think we had mentioned maybe like 30 to 40, minute, 40 minutes, but we'll see, you know, how it goes. Um, so I want to go ahead and let Zach go first. So let me pull up your PowerPoint. PowerPoint. All right. All right. <laughs> um, let me just pull up my timer. Um, one second here. Sorry, I was not prepared to pull up a stopwatch. Um, okay. Um, I'm good to go, right? Yep. I'll keep a counter too to make sure, you know. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Um, so thanks again, Dustin, for starting starting this debate and hosting it and Emerson for agreeing to debate. Um, so on July 10th, 2017, four years ago today, I got home from work early. And sitting on the couch after work, I got a text from one of my friends, Jared, saying suddenly and shockingly that Nate Bullock had died. Um, Nate was a fellow classmate of mine, a couple years older than me, and he had just graduated and was headed to college only for his life to be tragically cut short four years ago today. And four years ago today, um, amazingly, it was the first time I ever thought about the question, is evil evidence against God? So... Here's the argument from evil. Um, the general formulation of it is on the left. And here's my main contention is that while the appearance of certain evils may seem initially implausible given theism, when considering God's goals and purposes for the world, the argument from evil is not strong evidence against God. And Emerson's burden, at least from my perspective, and I stole a lot of this from Richard Swinburne, is to provide an example of bad state or bad states in which no good defense or theodicy can be provided and then show that this is evidence, that this evidence provides strong evidence against theism. So here's my response. Four main reasons I'm going to explore on uh, possible reasons God allows evil. So soul building, human freedom, knowable natural order, and a Christian theodicy. Um, and the fifth strategy is just to concede the problem. Because remember, our debate is not just is evil evidence against God, which I'd accept to some degree, um, but is evil strong evidence against God. So first, soul building. Soul building is a good um, that can come about that may require some evil, and it allows for things such as uh, the ability for humans to make self-forming human choices. Uh, for example, showing honesty and then becoming an honest person is a good thing. Furthermore, I think God's purposes for us in this life isn't just to say a prayer and escape hell, but rather develop a ruling family over the universe in cooperation with him. So it seems to me it's inevitable that if there is one evil and two imperfect people, some evils will be able to use to develop more perfect characters. So the question then obviously is, well, if God is perfect and doesn't need soul building, why would we? And well, for one, we aren't God and can never be God. And John Hick, as he presents the Iranian philosophy, 
Theodicy says, um, virtues which have been formed within the agent as a hard-won deposit of her own actions, his or her own actions in situations of challenge and temptation are intrinsically more valuable than virtues created within her, ready-made and without any effort on her own part. The second thing is human freedom. Um, human freedom would allow for things such as free will, which is an instrument for good, such as the forming of character, love bonds, and maybe even an evil conquering fellowship. I also think that free will is just an intuitively good thing to have. It's better to be free than not free. Um, furthermore, the ability to freely choose God and not be forced to choose God seems in intuitively better than being forced to choose God. Furthermore, if there is human freedom and evil, there will be some horrific situations. Um, you can bring up examples of torture or murder, um, things like this. I think if you're going to have human freedom and evils in the world, these things are inevitable. So then the question obviously might be, couldn't God just create a world where people always freely choose to do right? Um, heaven, so to speak, you know? Um, and there's a couple things we could say here. First, perhaps humans must experience evil to know not to choose evil. It's funny because I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this debate. I was in a leadership class my junior year of high school, and we always talked about, um, this wasn't even in regards to the problem of evil, is it better to learn through someone telling you something or better to learn something through experience? And time and time again, everyone agreed experience. Um, so I think it might be better even for humans and even in an appreciation sense to experience evil and to know to not choose evil than to just be created without ever choosing evil. Um, furthermore, redeemed care people may have a greater level of intimacy with God than those who were just created in heaven. A uh, third defense here is a knowable natural order. An evolving universe over time is going to allow for things such as a law-governed universe, which is better than an irregular universe, a predictable universe which allows for good such as scientific discovery, and a noble natural order that allows for creatures to make free choices in a moral arena and a chaotic world would not allow this. Uh, furthermore, an autonomous universe allows for creatures to freely choose God or not. So it seems to me that if there is a noble natural order and evil, it's going to follow that there are going to be some horrific sufferings and natural disasters. A common objection brought at this point is made famous by William Rowe is Rowe's fawn, which is an example of a fawn being trapped in a forest fire and then burning and suffering and suffering for a few days only to die. And the question is, what greater good comes from a fawn's death? And I'm not convinced because of defenses such as a noble natural order that there has to be some greater good necessarily, though I think we can argue that there are um, for that fawn in particular. Um, so in part, Rose fawns are a result of God creating a universe that unfolds in a noble natural way. And a fawn's death is a result of just living in this kind of universe. Um, so the question is, well, why would God create this kind of universe with this natural order that allows for horrific suffering, sufferance, rather than a universe with a noble natural order without the horrors, um, awfully, again, sounding a lot like heaven. And a couple of things could be said here. First is that's the promise of new creation in Christian theism. The evils that exist in this world are part of a process of creating a greater good. And furthermore, God didn't create a perfect universe because of goals other than the minimization of suffering, um, such as things like soul building and human freedom. Thinking about and reflecting on Nate's death um, four years ago today, which I didn't realize until about 30 minutes ago, um, it obviously seems like the world could have gone without Nate's suffering. Um, but it seems like God's goal isn't just to minimize suffering, um, but there's other things in store. Furthermore, a Christian theodicy, I'd say furthermore that Christian theism can explain evil in the world by pointing to this world as not God's perfect perf plan. As Romans 8 says, creation is groaning. Um, furthermore, we can point to the incarnation as God's manifestation of not just allowing suffering in the world, but also experiencing it. It seems like if humans experience gratuitous sufferings, it almost seems 
inevitable that the incarnated Son of God, Jesus Christ, also experienced gratuitous sufferings. Um, the promise of evils is a temporary pain with a new creation for both humans and animals, um, which I can defend later. Um, the quote here from Michael Heiser says, Yahweh's original intention was that all humankind would be his earthly family, ruling in cooperation with him and his heavenly family. The Old Testament describes the ruin of Yahweh's desire through a series of primeval rebellions. But the original objective was not defeated, but only delayed. After the rebellion at Babel, Yahweh set aside the nations and called Abraham to begin anew. Furthermore, maybe you think everything I said to this point is just trash and we should throw it away and maybe embrace skeptical theism, which I don't think I'm a fan of and no one else here. Um, but remember, the debate topic is, is evil strong evidence against God? It's Emerson's burden to show that not just that evil is evidence against God, but also that it's strong evidence against God. Um, so it's important here to think about what would constitute strong evidence. So my question is, um, how strong should the evidence of evil be for the following people? Um, obviously, arguments are very personal and everyone's going to react to different things in a different way. Um, so I understand that. But I think it's important to think about like what makes evidence strong. Um, so should my question is, should the argument from evil shift people towards maybe atheism or agnosticism for the following people. Joe is strongly convinced that God exists after studying the arguments for and against God. Now he's reconsidering the argument of evil. Number two, Sue is convinced God exists, but she has some doubts. Number three, Tyler has always intuitively believed in God and his existence, but has not looked into any of the arguments for or against God. And four, Sophie has studied the arguments on both sides and is agnostic. Uh, now she is reconsidering the argument from evil. So the final thing I want to leave is just a Morian shift worry. And if you case you don't know what that is, um, there's basically a bunch of arguments for and against skepticism. Like, should we know things about like the external world or other minds? Um, and G.E. Moore said, forget about the arguments. I can see my hand. Um, so obviously the external world is real. So we can just throw out all these other arguments. So I'm kind of wondering here, um, there's dozens of arguments for and against God. Um, and is, is the argument from evil powerful enough to make someone shift from theism to agnosticism and atheism? Uh, I wonder if Emerson's saying that like the argument from evil is just so powerful that there's just anyone should look, not obviously arguments are personal, but like, should we all just shift? Should we really seriously consider shifting to like an atheistic or an agnostic position after considering the argument from evil? Um, so that's the beginning of my opening or the end of my opening. Appreciate the time. Looking forward to the way the rest of this debate goes. And yeah, thanks. Oh, gotta mute myself. All right. <laughs> so before, again, we'll have time for rebuttals afterwards. Let me pull up Emerson's PowerPoint. Cool. All right. I will start the timer unless you want to, you can time yourself too if you want, but all right, go. Cool. Uh, well, thank you, Zach. Um, I dispute some of that. I'm I, Obviously, I'm going to resist responding to it now. Um, so uh, the evil that I wanted to talk about is everyone's favorite topic, animal suffering. So um, I should say that I do have the easy role in tonight's debate. I'm glad I'm not in the position of having to excuse why God allows rape and torture and animal predation. If I were running a simulation, I wouldn't allow these things if I had the power to prevent them. And it's not that I would intervene in every little interaction. I would just create a different causal web that didn't generate these effects. I would, however, have some limitations as a simulator since I can't do anything that's logically possible, I'm not all-knowing, and I'm not morally perfect. If I were, I couldn't imagine a remotely persuasive excuse I could offer if you saw that the simulation I created was filled with torture, rape, genocide, animal predation, war, birth defects, and so on. And even in my limited power and skill, I'm not sure I could offer a good excuse for creating or permitting those things. So the topic is, is evil strong evidence against God? So yeah, it means like we're DMing about this a little bit. Um, just like 
what is strong evidence? <laughs> like, uh, it's an interesting question. Um, so I, recently I've been really drawn to the sort of abductive approach um, in part because of theistic philosophers um, like Richard Swinburne, who Zach mentions, um, not just atheistic philosophers. So, you know, kind of the abductive inference to the best explanation sort of approach. So if something greatly raises our credence in a hypothesis, it's strong evidence for that hypothesis. And it would do so by being better predicted by hypothesis one than hypothesis two. So if the probability of evidence E conditional on H1 is greater than the probability of, of E conditional on H2, then E would be strong evidence for H1. So you can see up on the screen here, I've got uh, the general argumentative structure that um, not only this argument takes, but the sort of cumulative case for atheism that um, that I make. So take S to be some facts about animal suffering that are known to obtain, I to be the hypothesis of indifference, and T to be theism. So the probability of these facts about suffering that I'm going to um, explore later, conditional on indifference, is quite high, quite low on theism. Therefore, the probability of these facts conditional on indifference is much greater than the probability of these facts conditional on theism. So it's evidence that strongly favors indifference over theism. So the probability of these facts about animal suffering I'll be discussing tonight uh, is lower on theism than it is on atheism. Um, so since they are to be expected, given the natural course of events on a hypothesis of indifference, these facts strongly favor indifference over theism. So we're making a likelihood comparison. We don't need to show that the probability of this evidence on atheism is high in any sort of like absolute sense, so long as we know that the probability of this evidence conditional on atheism is greater than the probability of this evidence conditional on theism. So that's roughly what I mean by evidence and by strong evidence. Um, and by God, I should say, I, I just mean an omnipotent, omniscient, morally perfect designer of nature. I think that's, um, you know, a good working definition for our purposes. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, that's God, that's strong evidence. So um, the evil that I said I'm, I'm interested in tonight is um, animal suffering, suffering, specifically teleological evil. So teleological evil, according to Philippe Elian in his book with Josh Rasmussen, is God the best explanation of things, is, quote, an instance of suffering that occurs in virtue of the natural purpose or design plan of that thing. In other words, it's part of a thing's design plan or one of its natural purposes to cause other beings to suffer, end quote. So, um, so let's talk about what this is not. Um, you might have heard of the problem of dysteleology. Um, so this is not the problem of dysteleology. That is an argument from poor design. And the point is to argue against a supremely intelligent designer of nature. Um, but as Leon says, to put it crudely, um, the, uh, the problem of dysteleology is the problem of stupid design. The problem of teleological evil is the problem of malevolent design. So this is evil, or this is a, these are natural systems that are very well designed. They're very good at causing suffering. Um, they have design. They have a design that is well suited to to, uh, to cause suffering to organisms. You know, there are things in nature that have purposes and functions, and there are natural systems whose function is to cause suffering. Um, so, yeah, this is sort of the problem of malevolent design in nature. Um, according to Leon, this is a subset of natural evil, um, distinct from non-teleological natural evil like earthquakes, tsunamis. So. Um, yeah, just to um, give a couple examples really quickly. Um, animals in the wild suffer from endless predation. That's kind of that's the most obvious instance of teleological evil. 
Wild dogs disembowel their prey. Venomous snakes cause slow internal bleeding and paralysis. Crocodiles drown animals in their jaws. Predators with large sharp teeth and claws tear the flesh off their prey and snap their bones and often start feeding on them while they're still alive. Uh, this process often lasts for minutes upon minutes, sometimes hours and sometimes even days. So again, this is uh, you know natural evil that befalls non-moral agents. So many of the responses like the ones you've heard, like soul building or free will, just can't help you here. This isn't moral evil since most animals are not moral agents. This isn't just natural evil since, um, you know, the uh, purpose of an earthquake, if it can be said to have one, is not to like cause destruction and to trap humans under rubble. You know, an earthquake doesn't have a purpose. Um, but teleological evil, so like venom does have a purpose. You know, it's to paralyze, and, you know, prey and cause them to die in agony. <laughs> um, that's uh, that's the purpose, you know. So the uh, this natural evil can't be blamed on anyone but the designer of nature. The purpose or function of claws and teeth of predators is to tear open vulnerable prey. So this is not like a, uh, a perversion of nature. This is not something being misused. This is not like an unfortunate byproduct of an otherwise good system. This is the point. This is in the design plan. So a good omnipotent omniscient God wouldn't just create machines, so to speak, that are intended to produce suffering. That seems fairly uncontroversial to me. So it's very surprising that we find teleological evil in nature. Um, a system with predation in the design is a system that's designed to generate suffering. Again, it's not an unfortunate byproduct or a misuse of some ability or a perversion of nature. It's in the design plan. So part of so this this argument is somewhat new to me. It was brought to my attention by Philippe Elian in, in the book I mentioned, Is God the Best Explanation of Things? Um, and I think that the, uh, the power of this argument could potentially be underappreciated because people are thinking just, oh, you know, it's some kind of emotional plea or it's some kind of like, uh, oh, isn't this suffering so terrible? You know, you turn on the nature channel and it's so terrible. And uh, I mean, obviously it is. Like there's this famous um, David Attenborough quote. It says like uh, something like, you know, people complain about what we put on screen, but you should see what we leave on the cutting room floor. Um, you know, so, but the problem is it's, it's not that this is so terrible. It's that it's so ordinary. It's built into the ordinary workings of nature. It's part of the design plan. It's, it's the function. Okay. So if we're trying to make inferences about the designer based on the design, then um, benevolence is, is not the first thing that's on my list. So um, part of the reason why teleological evil is so powerful is because a theist could preserve basically everything else they think about other forms of evil. Like sometimes evil is a product of free will. Sometimes it's necessary for soul building. Um, you know, uh, sometimes it's necessary to give us opportunities for like forgiveness or courage. Um, but none of that can explain the eons of teleological evil that took place long before humans ever existed. So keep in mind, this has been going on for, for millions and millions of years, um, long before humans ever even showed up, you know, on the scene. Um, so I think that I'm, I did not keep track of the uh, time. Do you know where I'm at? You got like, Oh, like a minute and 20 seconds left. Okay, okay. I'll just uh, pick it up then. Um, here, I'll, I'll find a place to wrap up and then I'll, I'll pick it up in the next section. Um, okay, so teleological evil is evil that can't be blamed on anyone but the designer of nature. The purpose or function of these uh, systems that I've, I've sort of alluded to um, 
is to cause suffering. Like the purpose of venom is to cause agony. Um, the purpose of teeth and claws is to, uh, you know, snap the bones of prey and to tear their flesh off. Um, it's one thing to create an object that's like misused for suffering. So one example I heard was like, imagine that there's like, you know, someone can like drown in a bathtub, but it's not like it's the purpose of bathtubs to drown people who get in them. But, um, you know, the purpose of some of these things I've pointed to, you know, it is to create suffering. Um, so it's as, if, it's as if we've gone out in nature and we see bathtubs that are designed to drown people who get in them. <laughs> and it's like- 15 you, seconds. Sorry, I gotta be fair. Uh, oh, okay, cool. Um, so, like I said, the suffering is terrible, but it's also ordinary. It's built into natural processes. Inferring an indifferent force that's shaping nature is a better inference to make here. Or in other words, this evidence is more probable on difference on indifference than on theism. Perfect. Like right, at, right at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't end on bathtub. <laughs> I, I got to be fair. I got to. I got to not. I got to try not to show any bias here. Um, so okay, so we can. You told again, me we were going to gang up on Zach. I know. I, <laughs> I'm waiting for that section. You know. No, I'm actually not. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm writing down. So because we're not live or anything, you guys can interact a little bit. I'm actually writing down devil's advocate questions as I go for both of you that I will ask. So, um, you know, I'm gonna gonna put on my hat to Emerson <laughs> a little bit. Um, so, yeah. So we'll have Tim again. Uh, maximum of ten minute rebuttal time. Again, you don't need. You don't necessarily have to take all of it if you want. If you don't want, but yeah, I'll. Uh, you can go ahead and say whatever you want, Zach, in response to that. Okay, sounds good. Um, I'll start my timer. Um, so I appreciate that a lot, Emerson. You make a lot of really interesting and good points. Um, so I'll try to take them through one by one, and we'll just see where we go. Um, so the first thing that Emerson brought up is just asking, kind of, it looked like about like the nature of limitations. Um, so God obviously has a lot of different worlds he could create. So why would he create a world that allows for things such as rape and genocide and horrific evolutionary evils? Um, and there's a lot that can be said here. Um, one thing I do want to say, especially to consider, is by stripping away some of the greatest evils, you also might be stripping away some of the greatest goods. Um, you think about um, what would a world look like where genocide just couldn't happen? Like, is there a point where, like, um, maybe, like, killing's okay, but then after you kill 5,000 people, there's this unknown natural law that shuts you down and you can't kill any more people. Like, that seems, that seems very irregular. Um, so that's just one point there. Um, the first, then he brings up the argument from evil when he gives it the probability of suffering um, given theism is quite low and the probability of suffering given atheism is quite high. Um, I'm going to disagree, especially with the probability of suffering given atheism is quite high um, because this goes into is evil strong evidence is indifference doesn't really predict anything. Um, here's Peter Van Ingwagen, a quote on the hypothesis of indifference. He says that the hypothesis of indifference, this is not a very scientific hypothesis. It tells us only the nature and condition of sentient beings on earth do not have a certain very narrow narrowly delineated cause. Perhaps it would be not to count as a proper competitor with the quite specific thesis we have called theism. Perhaps it would be a consequence of your solution that only some proposition more specific than the hypothesis of indifference would properly, properly be in competition with theism, and this proposition might face difficulties of its own, difficulties not faced by the hypothesis of indifference. Um, so just to bring up in considering is evil strong evidence against God, when you say that the probability of suffering um, is high on atheism, you're assuming that conscious life exists, which is not something at all that you'd necessarily expect given atheism or indifference. Um, if there's something indifferent, why would it create anything if it's a mind and it's if atheism is true, it wouldn't be a god. Um, in, the, in that case, we wouldn't have the ability to predict whether we'd have any universes all, at all, let alone a complex one with 10 to the 80th number of atoms um, in the universe. 
So, and then furthermore, you wouldn't be able to predict things such as why would this universe go away where there's things such as like life and such. Um, so I would reject Emerson's argument. I do think though, you could reformulate it and say the probability of suffering um, given conscious life like assuming that conscious life exists given indifference um then the probability of suffering would be quite high i'd be willing to grant that and that's where i think you'd get a little bit of evidence against theism though i don't think it'd be strong evidence um because you already you'd have to assume that conscious life exists so i don't think indifference really explains anything um so i'm sure we can talk about that later um so furthermore just keep moving on um, he talks about like lots of tele teleological evils and malevolent design, um, animal suffering through predation. Um, so I think this gets into the question of like, why would God use evolution? Um, such a horrendous process with suffering and death. Um, why all this animal suffering um, to have human suffering? Um, and I think there's different things we can point to. Um, once again, if there's a noble natural order, um, animal suffering is inevitable. And we can talk about like, why would God have this kind of noble natural order? Well, I think there's different things like saying there's part of, it's part of a cosmic story of chaos to unity. Emerson brings up a really good point of saying this world is very um, painful and chaotic. And I think that's kind of part of the theistic story, especially from a Christian perspective. Um, I think there's value in evolution. Animals die. Yes, there's lots of death, but there's also lots of life um, and animals can grow. You can bring up examples such as, um, I know Emerson didn't bring it up in this uh, opening statement, but like Rose Fawn, and oftentimes you get presented like, well, Rose Fawn is just the end of the story for the animal. But given theism, it really isn't necessarily. Um, I see animal afterlife is totally plausible and expected given theism. So the Fawn story or any animals um, agonizing suffering and death. That's not the end of the story, given theism, necessarily. Um, God can totally raise an animal in new creation, um, and perhaps the animal could be given in some way to cognitive faculties to see its value and its suffering in the cosmic story of a chaotic world into an ordered world. Um, new creation promises new moral, spiritual, and social realities for all creatures, and humans may even praise animals who suffered to bring forth this cosmic story, as we praise our dogs today. Um, so his next point is trying to say soul building doesn't help with animals i disagree because there's no reason why given theism we can extend soul building to animals especially with regards to saying an animal afterlife trent dowardy's a good proponent of this john schneider um whose book's really interesting on evolutionary evils um so he says we are all machines that produce suffering um yeah we produce a lot of suffering but we also produce a lot of life and a lot of um interesting things specifically with humans like as Alvin Plantinga gets points out humans don't just produce suffering but literature poetry music art mathematics logic philosophy nuclear physics evolutionary biology plays humors explorations adventure and debates on the problem of evil um so I don't see this world as just a thing of producing suffering now if you extend that to the animal kingdom which I'm sure is something that Emerson would bring up which is a really important part because animals don't produce all those same goods which is fine I think this gets into the question of why would God use evolution and I've already talked about some of the reasons why I think that evolution would be a part of the cosmic story um let's see what else he says here um it's a part of the design plan given and he so that's kind of like a point you'd have to say well evolutionary evils is just part of the design plan in theism. And I think that's exactly right. Um, I, I agree completely there. Um, and it gets to the question of, well, why would this evolution be part of the design plan? And there's different things we could talk about here, um, such as things like an alternative explanation to theism, given atheism, we can point to evolutionary evils. Um, it's part of an aesthetic story of God weaving a world of chaos and death into a world of order and peace. Uh, furthermore, evolutionary 
isn't the evolution isn't the end of the story given theism it provides cosmic unity to all creatures if we all share a common ancestor um it seems like it, it binds us all together in a different way um john schneider has some really interesting conditions to talk about like why would god allow evolution and like what rights um would allow like what rights brain party here um we talked about different conditions such as like the evidential condition the rights condition the defeat condition um the seeing condition and the epistemic condition and what he argues is basically god has the rights um as such as like you can describe god as an artist creating a messianic world by unexpected and tragic means there's a promise of god defeating the evils um you can see that god is already at work in this scene as the cross and the incarnation um the seeing condition we can see that god is raised and brought to life um from the seemingly dead chaotic conditions that emerson described quite well um of evolution and evils into a world of order and righteousness and so much such a better world um and the epistemic condition where he writes, moreover, I suggest that the Job theodicy, which is something he develops, which we won't talk about now, um, provides a picture of God in the world that makes the existence of evils and suffering in human and the animal realms distinctly plausible on the assumptions of Hebrew canonical theism. So God has the rights. Um, let's see what else here we have. Um, the purpose is to create suffering. Like, I'm going to contest that. Um, obviously, like, that's not necessarily, like, especially like with evolutionary theory like evolutionary theory is adapting here like if we adopt something like simon, simon conway morris evolution isn't just this random and gratuitous process but something that's actually intentionally goal-directed um and if life like us didn't exist something life kind of like us would exist um so it seems like there's a teleological view even in evolutionary theory um i'm trying to think um another interesting thing to think about is like so the rainforest today, there's so much suffering in the rainforest. Um, so I'd be curious, like what Emerson thinks, like we could alleviate so much suffering um, by just burning down the rainforest right now. We could stop um, all the animal suffering and predation. We could stop it right now. So why don't we just burn down the rainforest? Um, and furthermore, if the human life is permeated by suffering, um, we have a lot of nuclear weapons and we could end human life. If it's just so dominated by suffering, um, we could just, just end it right now. Um, so that's about all I have. So looking forward to as we continue. And yeah, thanks. All right, over to you, Emerson. So um, I think I'm, I'm a little worried that the argument I made wasn't totally understood. Um, I'm not saying that like humans are, um, you know, machines that create suffering. I said that there are machines that create suffering in nature. Like, for instance, like, um, like the purpose is obviously suffering when the North American short-tailed shrew um, secretes venom that is intended to paralyze its prey so it can graze on it while it's still alive for days at a time. Um, that's not a misuse of that faculty. The function of that uh, natural system is to create, like that, that's just in virtue of how it is operating naturally. It's in the design plan that there is suffering there. And I don't think the, the uh, mice that are being fed on, um, eaten alive over the course of days have the possibility of soul building. So I just don't accept your uh, claim that soul building extends to uh, um, non-rational agents like most animals. Um, it's pretty ordinary to consider animals to be non-rational, non-moral creatures. Like when a lion kills a gazelle, we don't say the lion's guilty of murder. It's not a moral agent. Um, so it's hard to see, it's so much harder to see how something like soul building could apply to an animal that is not capable of reflecting, um, on moral reasons, or they, they don't really seem rational in general. Um, they're just very instinctual creatures. They, they have these instincts, um, that they've been designed to have that naturally produce suffering. Um, so that's more what I'm talking about. I'm talking about some of the things in nature that we observe um, that uh, clearly are intended to produce suffering. I'm not saying, I'm not an anti-natalist. I'm not saying that it's all like, yes, I'm aware that pleasure exists in addition to pain. I don't want to get rid of life. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm I am mostly focused though on animal suffering and the specific kind of animal suffering that I'm that I'm um, pointing at, which is teleological evil. Um, yeah, like I said, in most of these cases, there doesn't seem to be any possibility of growth or soul building. Like, what is a mouse thinking about as it's being eaten alive? Um, yeah, free will, moral responsibility, if those don't enter, enter into the picture here. Um, you know, a sea lamprey is not guilty of moral failure when it attaches its three-foot-long leech-like body onto the face of a sea creature and gradually drains its blood out over the course of many hours. Um, what I'm saying is that these creatures are doing what they're designed to do which is to cause suffering. Um, not that it's all, you know, it's all suffering or that everything in nature is designed to produce suffering. Um, just that there are these machines, so to speak, um, that when they are operating naturally, you know, operating according to their design plan, which you think they were designed by God. See, that's why this is so powerful because it must mean it, unlike earthquakes, unlike evil from free will, this is evil that God must have intended and it's evil that God must have intended as the designer of nature to befall just these non-rational agents that, uh, you know, like um, the victims of predators, for instance, um, or the, uh, you know, animals that are bit by venomous snakes or something like that, uh, or creatures that get infected with the zombie fungus or who have a sea lamprey attached to their body. Um, so... Uh, yeah, like I said, inferring an indifferent designer from teleological evil, um, which is all I really mean by the hypothesis of indifference. Like, uh, you quoted Van Inwagen about how the hypothesis of indifference is, like, very general and not super informative. But what I mean is just natural processes just plus indifference. So what I'm saying is that, like, at the, on the natural course of events plus indifference, you would expect a, a mixture of good and bad which I, I, like I've conceded, there is a mixture of good and bad. I'm not saying it's all bad. Um, so, you know, inferring an indifferent designer from teleological evil is a far more rational inference than an inference to a morally good designer, infinite in power and knowledge, plus like 10 ad hoc hypotheses explaining why he couldn't do any better than relentless flesh-tearing, bone-snapping predation. So my hypothesis is way simpler. That's not even a question. Um, I'm just thinking natural processes plus indifference. You're inventing a much, much more elaborate story than I'm inventing here that involves just a, like a much more profligate explanation and several, um, maybe I shouldn't say ad hoc hypotheses, but certainly like many, many hypotheses to explain the same data I'm explaining just with indifference plus the natural course of just natural processes just taking their course. So, um, it's also just interesting to me to think that God was standing at like the prior point of creation, looking at like sea lampreys and, you know, animals being eaten alive over the course of hours. And he's like, yeah, this is good. Um, this is going to go on for hundreds of millions of years. No one is ever going to see it. No animal is ever going to grow from this. Um, but it's good. I'm a, I think this is great. So like, all I'm saying is that when you, when we were looking at what David Hume called the strange mixture of good and ill, which appears in life, I think indifference explains that much better than theism does. Um, not just because the hypothesis is simpler, but um, it's just more expected on indifference that there would be this mixture of good things and bad things. Um, whereas on theism, it seems like you've got to invent uh, quite a few extra explanations to um, you know try to explain why some of these things would exist. Um, so you mentioned heaven earlier. So I, are you like a... I mean, I guess we can get to this in discussion, but um, 
so non-human animals can go to heaven and apparently universalism is also true but just i mean for animals i'm curious if you're a universalist for humans or if you're a universalist for animals but not humans um but i guess the the main point about heaven is that compensation doesn't equal justification so just because animals are compensated for their suffering by giving something good in the afterlife, that doesn't justify their suffering. If compensation equals justification, I can do anything I want to anybody and then just compensate them afterwards. But compensation is not a free pass to just do whatever you want. Um, you know, you just have a free pass to do whatever you please. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to see that compensation doesn't equal justification. So I don't think heaven actually um, helps out all that much. And um, I'm not sure how many, I mean, I've, it, I had to go to philosophy of religion and I had to be here for a while before I ever even heard that animals might go to heaven. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I, but I just, I guess the last thing I'll say is just, I, your, one of your points is well taken that um, it's perfectly possible for you to just accept that like teleological evil, for instance, is strong evidence against God because um, it would just be very irrational to make an inference to God from this particular evidence. This evidence is far more expected on an indifferent, you know, indifferent forces shaping nature as opposed to a morally perfect force that is shaping nature and creating these instances of teleological evil. Um, but you could just, you know, you, you're never just going to appeal to just one piece of evidence or make one argument for God or against God. Like, I just made a video or a podcast episode about why I'm an atheist, and it's a cumulative case. It's like a pretty long cumulative case, actually. And um, I've, I mean, like I said, I favor this kind of abductive approach. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's not that I'm appealing to this one piece of evidence and saying everyone needs to be an atheist, but I would include this in my cumulative case. And if I were to just appeal to nothing but suffering, um, yeah, this would be this would be up there. But I think that, um, so if you remember the um, argumentative structure that I mentioned earlier, that's how I would approach this issue. I would make a cumulative case where I appeal to different lines of evidence that, you know, together make it unlikely that God exists. And obviously I would expect you to do the same thing, but I do think it's pretty um, unambiguous that suffering is better explained by an indifferent universe and by indifferent forces shaping nature than a morally perfect force shaping nature, um, plus several other hypotheses that, you know, need to account for um, for the teleological evil and other forms of animal suffering. So um, I, think I'll, I think I'll leave it there and we can move on to a discussion. Sure. Excellent. So now, I mean, we can kind of go with the flow with this conversation and discussion, however you guys want to do it, um, and we can, we can see where it goes. Sure. Um, so I had a debate between Ben Watkins and um, Kyle Allender a few weeks ago on consciousness, and Ben started off by saying like there's two disagreements, one that he thinks they could fix, one not. Um, I kind of feel the same way. Like I think there's two different disagreements here. Um, one on like the nature of the argument, which I think we can probably agree on when we hash it out, and then the second one's on like animal suffering and such, and we can maybe hash it out a second if that works for you. Yeah, totally. Also, don't sure. distract me on consciousness because I'll start talking about that. <laughs> so, um, are animals conscious, Emerson? Um, no, I'm just kidding. All right. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so you got me for a second. I was about to get mad. <laughs> it is wrecked. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, your, so your argument, um, if I recall right, in your opening, it said the probability of suffering given indifference quite high. The probability of theism um, given indifference is quite low. 
and I said for reasons of like the failure of hypothesis of indifference to really predict anything, like I'm going to reject that premise because there's nothing about an indifferent hypothesis, a different like foundation or whatnot that says that there's a universe with conscious life versus no life or um, one atom versus 10 to the 80th. Like it doesn't predict anything. So if we add in conscious life, I Does agree with you. predict that there will be 10 to the 80th atoms? I mean, like, I don't really see how, I mean, it sort of seems like you're changing the subject a bit. Like when you say, well, well, well the indifference doesn't explain consciousness though. So what I'm saying is, I think that like, what I'm saying is that on theism, we'd have more reason to expect conscious life to exist on than on atheism or indifference. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's just changing the subject from the uh, problem of evil. Well, no, because in a way, I'm just thinking, thinking about how you worded your argument, like your opening argument in your opening statement. Because if you're you're assuming that in your hypothesis of indifference, that there is conscious life, because if there's no conscious life, there's no suffering. Like indifference doesn't predict that there'd be conscious life, at least to the same degree of probability that theism would. Um, so once we in, add in that there's conscious life, I I totally it would be a lot more sympathetic to your argument. So that's, that's the point I'm bringing up. Well, I could just say, well, theism doesn't predict that divine hiddenness would obtain. Or, yeah, sure. um, and That's I could fine. start listing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but then now mm -hmm. we're talking about this, like, you know, broader cumulative case for atheism or for um, theism. And it's like, you know, I, I'm not even coming down on a position where, you know, whether you're right about consciousness or not, that it's better predicted by theism or atheism. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that that would be like a part of a cumulative case. Um, yeah, just like I could just start appealing to other pieces of evidence. But I do think it would just sort of be like, changing the subject to like a broader cumulative case as opposed to just talking about um the argument from evil specifically because i'm saying specifically that like animal suffering and uh, specifically teleological suffering that results from teleological evil is just better expected if you think that the uh, by the way i can flesh out um my hypothesis of indifference a little bit more because you're right just saying like well indifference like yeah that's that's not very informative but um, you know, we both kind of understand broadly what natural processes are and like mm -hmm. what they operate as in nature. So it's like, what I'm saying is that there's a process of evolution by natural selection um, and that the, that that is the designer of nature, so to speak. So, um, you know, natural selection is amoral and indifferent to our suffering. So we get some good stuff, we get some bad stuff. But um, I think that that sort of is the like most bare bones and like simplest and uh, simplest explanation I could offer that like really does predict, like David Hume said, the strange mix of good and ill that we see in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I almost feel like we're like talking in circles here because I think I mostly agree with you. Like my, my whole point is like when considering like, well, is evil strong evidence against God? Like, well, indifference doesn't really explain much. Um, that's that's my whole point. And like we can add in like given like um these certain facts like yeah sure there if we have like this evolutionary story then yeah we would expect these su sufferings of more on indifference than we would theism but like we have to have the evolutionary story in the first place and that's what indifference doesn't predict which i know you see so, as a different issue um and i understand that no we we both accept we both accept the evolutionary story i think right i don't have a problem with it so yeah well yeah so we're both operating with like sort of a like a, a common ground here and then I'm just saying this process of evolution is like totally indifferent. And you're saying like, mm -hmm. okay, maybe, but there is this non-indifferent force that is also playing a creative role because I assume you believe God is the like ultimate designer of the natural world. Yeah, I, mm -hmm, I would agree. So I think like all I'm saying is like, um, 
to compete with like to compete with theism like you your your hypothesis like your ultimate like you don't have i'm not expecting you to have one but like for your whatever the hypothesis to be to compete with theism whatever it is you're gonna have to explain all the data not just evil uh, and that's gonna get into other arguments but i'm just saying like just in like just begin like just starting off there's nothing about indifference that predicts really anything that's just my point okay um yeah, like you said, I, I'm not quite sure where to grab onto there because I don't, I haven't heard anything that really disputes the claim that in an indifferent universe you would expect some teleological evil, whereas in a in a nature that is like designed by a morally perfect being, you would not expect teleological evil. So, do you have a problem with that specific claim? Um, can you rephrase that? I think I'm tracking with you, but I'm not, I don't want to misrepresent you. Um, so. In nature, we do observe teleological evil, which is just you know suffering that results from things acting in virtue of their uh, natural purposes, like the function of these things that we see. It is to produce suffering, like it's in the design plan to produce mm -hmm. pointless suffering to these you know animals who are non-moral agents. Um, I don't want to add too much to it there, but it's um yeah it's a specific kind of suffering that we're observing um someone's cat is mad at the door <laughs> shut. i don't have a cat in my room so i'm, I'm so distracted i was you, like can they hear that you, you shut the door and the cat is mad <laughs> i swear they wait until i'm like recording and talking to someone and then they just start me out they were sleeping for like two hours before this um okay so here's how felipe leon puts it in a it's got the best explanation of things premise one the world contains a lot of teleological evil premise two the world containing a lot of teleological evil is surprising on the hypothesis of theism, but not on the hypothesis of naturalism. Therefore, the world containing a lot of teleological evil provides at least some disconfirming evidence against theism vis-a-vis -vis naturalism, end quote. Okay. I mean, I can agree. I, I wouldn't think, my, here's my contention is like, that's not strong evidence because I don't think indifference predicts anything like, like for, like for the argument to evil to run, you're like, as I said before, and I don't want to just like talk in circles because that's not entertaining um, to people listening or informative, but like, once again, like indifference doesn't predict anything. Um, so that's my contention. Like I'm willing to like agree to it's all indifference that plus other stuff that we mm -hmm. agree on, like natural, yeah. like evolution by natural selection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, Can I yeah. Can I interject? Yeah. Okay. So I think I'm not sure if the hangup is on the term. So in Felipe Leon's argument, he used naturalism rather yeah. than indifference. So would I don't that change things? Would, yeah. So if you if he's saying naturalism would pr predict certain kinds of things, and it seems like you're hung up on whether indifference simpliciter wouldn't predict things, but it sounds like um, whether you choose the word of naturalism or, or indifference might affect how you're responding to what he's saying. Is that I'm not sure if that. Is um, fair. I don't think it would. Um, like I think this is just one of those things where like. Like, if we assume that, like, the evolutionary story is running, like, then, yeah, I'd agree to that argument. The problem is, like, indifference doesn't predict that there'd be an evolutionary story in the first place. And that, that's just, that's Neither the main point I think it, you'd have more reason to expect life to exist on theism than um, indifference. Like, well, that's not the, the evolutionary point. story, though. And um, Sure, sure. I sure. mean, like, mm -hmm. actually, this is an argument against theism because mm -hmm. God has a lot of options. Like, God can create people through evolution. He can do it through special creation. He can do it through intelligent design, um, since ID proponents insist that's different. Um, or it's some kind of mixture of the three there. Um, whereas for naturalists, we, we basically only have, like, one option, like, maybe two. And, mm -hmm. like... Um, anyway, so the fact that evolution obtains is, you know, evidence that favors 
naturalism because it's really our only option, but it's not your only option. So actually, I would I would dispute that. I don't think theism does a better job predicting that evolution would be the case. Yeah, no, I think like once you like I agree with you in principle. I think like once again, you're like indifference doesn't say whether there'd be anything in existence or a bunch of atoms or an evolutionary story or no life or five planets or five hundred. That's my point. Is like as I quoted like quoting Van Engwang when like indifference. And like as you're using natural, like it doesn't predict anything. Um, um, your hypothesis is very broad, um, so it's not really like to me. Like once you assume like certain things, such as like we have like a universe that allows for like an evolutionary story, then yeah, then we can run the argument. But like we need that kind of like little more meat on the hypothesis to see it, like at least for me to see it competing with theism. All right, let's let's uh, I'm gonna let you have the last word here. Uh, Zach, on that topic. I think no, there, no, Emerson, can have, Emerson can have the last word. I insist, because I, okay. I, I was the one that picked this fight. So please, Emerson, finish. Uh, well, oh, um, no, no. So I was going to say, we can move on from that specific topic, because I think we're getting caught. And I think there was yeah, a probably. second, I don't remember what the second point, there's there's multiple things you guys want to discuss, but I just want to move on from that one, just be, just for the sake of time. But if, yeah, if you want to say anything else about that, Emerson. Um, no, I guess I'm okay with leaving it there. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I've said what I have to say about it. But I actually had a question for Zach, though, about the sort of natural order point mm -hmm. um so uh you know there's this kind of regularity i, I don't know i can't remember exactly how you put it but there's like there's a mm -hmm. there's order and regularity and that's um well i mean like it's aesthetically more pleasing than just very mm -hmm. irregular universe yeah um but how do miracle interventions factor into that because you don't believe in a regular mm -hmm. universe i believe in a lot like regular universe but you don't you think that there are these miracle interventions um i mean how often do you think there are miracle interventions in like little small ones because there are some christians who think everything from you know i prayed about you know cancer and my cancer went into remission i prayed for a parking space and it opened up um all the way to like the miracles of jesus and stuff so um it doesn't seem like god is respecting this like you know orderly like this natural law orderly universe that you're claiming he uh he wants it's not about there being always a knowable natural order, but they're about being a generally knowable natural order um, that allows for things for like for us to do things such as like science or know that like when I put my car keys on like the rack that they're not just gonna like disappear because the laws of gravity decided they wanted to stop for a little bit. Um, so I don't like it's about having a reliable way of the world unfolding. Um, so like yeah, miracles can happen. I'm not saying that it always goes this way, but it's about having a generally knowable natural order. So yeah. Okay. But I mean, I guess it still remains though that like, well, I guess how how often do you think God does intervene? <laughs> um, so like obviously there's different classes. Like so, um, Mike Ray wrote a book on divine hiddenness. Um, you know, like and I think like one of the things he brings up well is like we assume that like to hear from God we need some sort of like voice in the sky that's like some sort of supernatural intervention. Um, but then we could just have cognitive faculties designed to like know and experience God. Like there's no issue there. Um. So, I mean, like, a God can, like, speak to us, and it doesn't have to be through some sort of, like, beyond the no, like the, the natural laws. So, in that sense, um, I, I think quite often. Um, but then in terms of, like, well, how often does God, like, go beyond, say, like, the natural laws? I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I have good, as a Christian, I have a good reason to think it happens. I don't know how often. So, yeah. Um, okay, well, I feel like that kind of undermines the point a, a bit, at least, but... It seems like God could have made uh, different natural laws. Like there are conceivably different natural laws, and um, there's certainly no reason that there had to be predation or there had to be like poison or you know like a venomous snakes or paralyzing agents or sea lampreys. 
like look up a sea lamprey. They're just these giant. Le- if you can look at that thing and tell me there's a god, then you are stronger than I am. <laughs> Those things are horrifying. And uh, anyway, I seriously thought about putting one up on screen, but I thought I'd spare everyone. But um, so God could have created, you know, different natural laws, like ones where, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, there are creatures that are just herbivores. There's no reason God couldn't have made everyone an herbivore. And there are some creatures that just absorb energy through sunlight. And, you know, the thing is, what we essentially are, to my mind, are conscious creatures. And there are so many different conceivable ways to have conscious creatures without the specific way that we have them. Um, So I just, I don't think you can appeal to these laws as if they constrain God, because God created those laws. And he could have created different laws, ones where we don't have teleological evil. And presumably, if he's good, he doesn't want to create little machines whose only purpose is to cause suffering to creatures who can't grow from it. Like, so anyway, I just, I don't think you can actually appeal to these laws as constraining God since he created them, right? I'm not saying they constrain, like, um, for example, like, um, I don't think they're constraining God. It's like, it's like, oh, it's the strong force. I can't do anything about that. Um, so no, that's not what I'm saying. Like, like even like- he operates within the bounds that he made or something because he wants this noble- It's about having like a- it's about having a noble order that can do things such as like scientific predictions um, or knowing that like when I drive my car, it's not going to suddenly just like float in the outer space because gravity stops. Um, like things like that. Like, and like, I'm not saying God doesn't intervene. Like one of the responses to like the problem of evil is from like Alex Proust. And he talks about um, like animal suffering and predation. And it's like, well, why would all these animals suffer? And uh, Alex Proust has a really interesting response that is, he says they don't. Um, and it sounds really weird because it's like, um, we're going to get into consciousness a little bit here, but it's like, it's like, he can say, he says like, like it's totally compatible, um, that like, like we could see like these animals having physical pain, but if there is this like mental aspect to them, they just don't have that pain, like when it's occurring. Um, so that's a little off topic, but I'm just saying the point is like, like we can have a regular universe and God intervening. Like there's just no issue. I don't see the issue. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, the idea is if this evil is just the product of these natural laws and it's like well look god has these other reasons for wanting this knowable natural order um which he violates sometimes but don't worry about that like he wants this knowable natural order of natural laws and um so look when you do that you get some things like fawns burning alive in the forest you get some things like paralyzing agents and um you know an entire system that's built on predation for eons I, I mean, I just don't find that plausible because it's so easy to imagine another system where there is no predation. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. so it's just weird to appeal to these natural laws when you can just easily imagine different natural laws that don't produce the same kinds and the staggering amount of suffering that we're talking about. So do you think the quantity of suffering matters? Like, like to me, like, yeah, I course. think about like, the problem of animal suffering and it's like, yeah, there may be like, let's say like 500 billion, 500 trillion animals that have suffered. Um, like there's still a problem if it's 500 billion or 500 million or 500, like there's still that problem. It's still that's there. A, that's an absurdly conservative estimate. Like, I mean, there are, there have been a hundred billion people, you know, and like, we haven't been around very long. We're talking about like hundreds of millions of years. Like we're talking mm-hmm. about like, in, in like our brains are not capable of imagining the number of uh, like it's just sure. sort of meaningless. I could throw out some number here, but like it wouldn't even mean anything to us. So it's mm-hmm. it's a huge amount. And again, it's not just the amount. Like and yeah, it is terrible. It's not like just kind of um, 
oh well they're lesser animals so they don't suffer as much or something it's like no they, they they're capable of suffering quite terribly like pain is just an experience in the minds of conscious creatures you don't need to have like advanced intelligence or self-consciousness or anything to have a negatively charged hedonic state or some kind of negatively valenced experiential state like if you're set on fire as like a woodchuck or something you know that sucks it doesn't matter that you can't do math even though so like because I don't know what Alex Proust was saying exactly, but it's ridiculous to say that animals can't suffer or feel pain. They obviously can suffer. Um, so you know, can I can I just inter interject there for a minute? Mm -hmm. Like I'm not particularly defending Alex Proust's position because I don't think we need it, but I think it's plausible. Like like what's wrong with given the hypothesis of theism? Um, when an animal is it like maybe say suffering, the, the physical phenomena is like still there. Like we can see the brain states. Like assuming like um like a dualistic picture or, or something like that. Like there's no actual mental suffering going on for the animal. Like, what, what's implausible about that given theism? Um, well, for neo-Cartesianism, uh, that is basically what you just described, where animals are just sort of these robots that scream when you stick a needle in them, but they don't actually feel any pain. Um, mm -hmm. So that is a horrific idea that led to tons and tons of animal torture, actually. Um, but, the I, I okay, mean, like yeah, I said, yeah, the it, only... But yeah, people the, can manipulate the idea and do terrible things, but like, what's implausible about it's not terrible if you're right. Like, I totally agree with you, yeah. It's not terrible. There's nothing wrong mm, with it. I mean, if they can't feel pain, they can't suffer. Then there's nothing wrong with, you know, engaging in vivisection of, like, live well, animals like Descartes and his followers did. Or, just like, because you know, the rainforest, Just because the rainforest wouldn't feel pain when I burn it down doesn't mean that burning down the, burning down the rainforest is a fine thing to do. Well, it has an obvious effect on conscious creatures. I mean, the... Uh, it, I mean, burning down the rainforest would kill lots of conscious creatures and cause them to burn alive. Okay, and assuming that, I apologize, that's a bad analogy. Assuming a place where there, um, let's say there's plants, but there's no animals living in them, which is hard to imagine in this world because of all like the little, like little animals. But like, like if just like, like, I don't think just destroying things because they can't feel pain. Like, I don't think that's like a good, like way to live by. Um, yeah, yeah. So there are some moral philosophers who think that like things like trees, even if they're not, that there's no experience there, um, that they're still like intrinsically valuable. Um, like my friend Aaron Rabinowitz has defended this position that like even if there's no consciousness associated with plants or trees, they're still intrinsically valuable. So I'm I'm not like disagreeing with that. But so let's say that there's there's nothing it's like to be a plant, but there is something it's like to be a cow. It's obviously worse to mistreat a cow than it is to mistreat a plant, even if you don't want to grant that there's nothing wrong with mistreating a plant. There's still obviously like this hierarchy here of things you should be concerned with. But the reason that, to just go back to the point about neo-Cartesianism, okay, what is implausible about it? Well, so um, it is certainly possible given theism and given dualism. So that's two hypotheses. It's, it's already like, it, it is possible that, animals are just complex machines that uh, feel no pain. Okay, but there's literally no reason to think that that's true. It's just a wild speculation. It's like saying that maybe there's an angel pushing the moon or something. It's just that, like, there's literally no reason to think that's true and a lot of reason to think that that's false. For instance, on theism, God gave you intuitions and gave you, uh, you know, faculties for discerning the world. And they, oper and like, you operating naturally in your natural environment you know uh using the faculties that god gave you will be repelled by the idea of torturing an animal for fun so mm -hmm. and you'll also be 
you'll also just naturally think that it is like something to, you know, be an animal on some level, even if it's very different from, you know, what it's like to be a human. So if you, I'm just saying on theism, on your view, you have reason to think that animals can suffer because using your, you know, God-given intuitions, that is just the default view. That's what people naturally come to believe until they do a bunch of bad philosophy, like, um, you know, Descartes' followers, and then think, oh, actually, these are just complex machines that just scream when I kick them. They don't actually feel pain like I do. Like, mm -hmm. that is just the natural way that you interpret the evidence, and there's no reason to doubt it. There's no reason to think otherwise. So if you buy into some sort of, like, phenomenal conservatism picture, then, yeah, it's just the default view is just that animals can suffer. And especially if you're a theist, you should believe that animals can suffer because God gave you these faculties for truth tracking and they naturally lead you to the belief that animals can suffer. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I, like, I don't, I'm like, I think it's important to like, think about like, like this debate, like my job isn't to like have this concrete, like evil is no evidence against God, da, 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 like, like the Odyssey or whatnot. Like my job is just to poke holes, like to show like, while it may seem like initially it may appear like evil, strong evidence against, against theism um, due to different reasons, like this isn't actually the case. Like, so, I mean, you're right. There's problems in that problem, but like, I don't have to defend something like a hundred percent, like with certainty, I just have to poke holes. Um, something, do you have anything else you want to say on it? Cause I'd love to talk with you about like, um, animal suffering with regards to like them being like moral agents and such. I don't know if oh, you anything you yeah. add on that bit. Sure. sure yeah. So, yeah. So, I agree with you. Like, in a sense, like in like, and I think Trent Dowdy would agree with you too. Like, animals aren't moral agents in this world, in a sense. Um, but an important part of theism is the idea that like this isn't just the only life. Like, this isn't the only point. So, like, what's implausible about given theism? Um, maybe the animal that suffers under predation, like a mouse you were talking about, may come to a pre to develop cognitive faculties and say an afterlife um, and realize how their suffering actually had some like purpose in the grand scheme of um, the world. Like what's, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is more general. It's that you are making the, the explanation here way more complicated than my explanation, which is really simple. Like I said at the beginning, and um, I'll reiterate, like there's not much for me to explain here because I think that there's an indifferent force that is shaping these things. And that's why there's suffering. Whereas in order to sort of make this seem justified, you've got to invent like an animal afterlife and like a doggy heaven and stuff. And like, again, there, it's not that I'm saying that that's definitely false. I'm just saying that unambiguously, it is more complicated than the story that I'm saying. It's more like profligate of an explanation. You have to have all these auxiliary hypotheses in order to make sense of the data whereas I don't. Like, mine is just very simple and straightforward. So that's like a more general problem that's basically always true in these problem of evil discussions, is that the atheist position is simpler by, like, a lot. Like, it's a much simpler position. Sure. Yeah, I mean, if, like, I don't want to get too much in the beginning again here. Um, like, I do have to come to different, like, defenses or theodicies or one. Like, yeah, that's a part. Like, these are all consistent with theism. And then, um, once again, like, you're going to have to, do, and this is Peter Van Ingwen, I think part of his critique of like the hypothesis of indifference is you're going to have to do the same exact thing. Like the, the like theism could, um, gives more reason to think that there'd be like, say like life in the first place and indifference is going to have to explain, well, um, maybe there's this like infinite regress or this necessary state. And from this necessary state, it was set in the right way where we'd have like, um, an evolutionary story that would be allowed to unfold in one planet. Like, like all the, like, I'm going to have to add, I have to add auxiliary hypotheses here, even though they're consistent with theism, you're going to have to do the same thing with other things. Um, so 
Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I no, and, and I'm tempted to, uh, you know, point out that like you're just changing the subject, but the thing is you're doing what you should be doing in this case. Like the way that I see this is that there are basically only three options for the theist when they're confronted with evil like this. So the first option is just to look at something that I've brought like teleological evil and just say, uh, there's no way to assess the probability of that. Like it's, is it more likely on atheism? Is it more likely on theism? There's no way to know. So that is just a totally disingenuous and like, I don't have much time for that because it just seems like, it just seems so obvious. And it just seems like you're just trying to say something in response to the argument. I'd like, appreciate it if you don't psychoanalyze me though. I'm not trying to be rude. I, you didn't say like, that. Like, you didn't say that. Well, you're just assuming that I'm trying to be disingenuous. Like it's, you it's didn't not, say I don't that. Wanna... No, 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 stop, stop. I didn't say that okay. you, I said okay. atheist. You didn't okay. say that. Okay, so we're still friends? No. No. <laughs> no, just kidding. Okay. Of course, of course. Um, no, what I'm saying is that, like, for a theist in general, and I haven't heard you say this, okay, mm -hmm. so I'm not saying you're saying this, is to argue that the probability of facts about evil are inscrutable, which I'm saying is disingenuous. Um, it's like, I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, like Jeff Lauder has this argument from consciousness for theism. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually a good argument. I think that consciousness is more affected on theism than on atheism. Mm -hmm. And when I see some of the like motivated reasoning from atheists, it kind of annoys me a little bit. It strikes me as a little bit disingenuous. It's almost just like nothing can be allowed to count for evidence against atheism. And like there are critiques of that mm -hmm. argument and responses and counter responses so that it's not like atheists can't explain consciousness, but I do think that, you know, there's a good case to be made that theists are on slightly better uh, footing on this point. But my point here is just that atheists are obviously on better footing when it comes to suffering and evil. Mm -hmm. um, so some people, like, in a desperate attempt will just say that, like, there's no way, to, is, it, is it more or less likely on atheism or theism? There's no way to know. I don't buy it. And like I said, I haven't heard you say that. I'm just saying some theists say that. It strikes me as disingenuous. Um, yeah, I was going to say, sorry, I was going to say, maybe maybe it would be better word to say it seems disingenuous. Because maybe maybe some of the miscommunication was, you said it's disingenuous to do blah, blah, blah. And I think Zach was like, you know, took the wording. I don't know. I, I get what you're saying. So I just mm -hmm. wanted to put it in a little bit there. I agree with you. Skeptical theism is not the way forward. I, I'm on the same page as you. The second and third options, though, are the ones that I've heard you engage in, and I don't think they're disingenuous. Um, I think that the second <laughs> op option is to offer like auxiliary hypotheses that try to make evil probable on theism. Um, mm -hmm. The third, which is what I take to be the only viable route, is to grant that naturalism better predicts facts about suffering, um, you know, particular horrendous evils, animal suffering, teleological evil, than theism, but then try to show that other lines of evidence outweigh this evidence for naturalism. Um, so the second option I view is just kind of a lost cause, but the third option I think actually is like the only way forward. So, and you know, it seems like your instinct is to go that way, like to mm -hmm. say like, well, what about all this other stuff? And it's just like, yeah, what about it? Like, I mean, you are, and, and like I said, I'm kind of of two minds about this because on the one hand, you are changing the subject from this specific problem of evil that I'm bringing up, but you're kind of doing what you should be doing, which is just moving on to other arguments that support theism because i i don't think that you can you can create an explanation such that like teleological evil is better explained by theism than by naturalism so um i think we agree a lot more than i thought we did um so let's like just going back to the consciousness thing like 
um, you know, like, yeah, you'd agree that consciousness would be more expected on theism. Um, yeah. So, and then, but then there's other hypotheses to explain consciousness. Like, I know, I don't, I'm going to misrepresent, I'm sure I'm going to misrepresent you in consciousness, but European psychists, like that, there's an explanation. Um, it doesn't have to be theistic, like necessarily theistic. Um, so there's an explanation, um, may not be as good as theism, but like, there's an explanation. Um, so then like, all I'm saying is like, almost the same exact thing with regards to the problem of evil. Like, yeah, like if we grant that, like, there's a or there's like some sort of like evolutionary story, like, yeah, that would be more expected on um, indifference than theism. Like, I'm willing to grant that. I just don't think it's strong evidence because um, one, I think that there's a bunch of um, things that we can consider on theism that would make it more plausible, not as not as plausible as atheism, or sorry, not indifference, but more plausible. And so there's one, and then two, like, I, once again, like indifference doesn't explain anything, which kind of relates to the, the first thing I brought up, but it's a little bit different. So, yeah. I, I should add though, I think there's one other thing theists can do, which is kind of, adjust the notion of God, which I've mostly been like holding in place because I think if you gave up God's omnipotence, I would just basically consider myself the winner of the debate. <laughs> like, I don't think you're going to do that, but I'm saying that like, you know, if you look at something like the Epicurean paradox, just giving up God's omnipotence just solves the problem. And if you're looking at the more like um, abductive um, inference to the best explanation route that, that I prefer, um, it's not like everything's answered in full, like you still have some work to do, but it's a it's a way more promising project from where I'm sitting, um, just to say like, well, maybe God's nature is not exactly what we thought. And by the way, this does have like a basis in tradition, like Jews, for instance, have like a very different notion of God's power than like modern evangelical Christians. So it's not like this, you'd just be making it up or something. It has a basis in tradition. Um, and it just seems like a much more promising route of just saying, of just adjusting the omni attributes um, in order to try to account for suffering. So I should mention that's another thing that theists could do. Um, but, you know, I would consider it kind of like a victory if I could get a theist to concede that maybe God's not omnipotent or something. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I don't think I'm going to help you out there, Emerson. <laughs> um, yeah, so like once again, like my original contention in this debate um, is that while the appearance of certain evils may seem initially implausible given theism, um, when considering God's goals and purpose for the world, the argument from evil is not strong evidence against God. I'm not saying that theism can explain all the data as well as indifference can, but I'm saying it can explain it pretty well when you consider different the defenses or theodicies that are covered. Um, in the same way that like maybe like something like panpsychism could explain consciousness pretty well, um, even though maybe like if you just read like J.P. Moreland, it's like, oh, shoot, well, atheism's over. Like that, And I'm just saying like the same thing, like you may like look at the problem of evil before considering like the different hypotheses, the different ideas theism has to offer, and be like, oh, shoot, theism's over. But when you look at them, it seems that like you can fit this story pretty well with a theistic story. Um, so that, that's my point. Do you mind if I ask each of you some questions now as well, as I've been listening to this? Unless, I mean, if you have other stuff you guys wanted to work out. So I'll try to be fair with this. So first for Zach, um, so is your contention that the specific amount of evil in the world as it stands isn't strong evidence or that evil in principle couldn't be strong, so strong evidence against God? So for example, like let's say you have a dial and we turn the suffering up 10% of, mm -hmm. of all the suffering that's ever happened. Would that be, oh, and then we turn it to 20%. Then we turn it to 30%, 40%, keep going. At what point is it strong evidence against theism? Or on your view, is it just never going to be strong evidence against theism? Yeah, that's a great question. I appreciate that. Um, so in the beginning, um, 
I don't think I had this, but there's a really good quote from Richard Swinburne that I found as I was kind of thinking about this debate. Um, and what he says is he concludes that um, that if there's bad states, which no greater good defense, um, and I understand it's just like any defense that can be provided, the bad state must count against the existence of God. So if you could provide like a bunch of bad states with which there'd be no like adequate or good defense, um, then you'd have to keep increasing your credence towards atheism. Um, and my contention is like, um, like we can explain these states at least decently. Um, but I think we can do it pretty well. So I, yeah. I'm kind of wondering about the context of that quote, though, because just in this context, it, it doesn't seem correct. It doesn't seem correct that all you have to do is offer an explanation of suffering, no matter how implausible it is. And then I mean, like we're making like an abduct. That's not how abductive cases work. You don't just offer like a possible explanation and then it's like 50 mm -hmm. 50 yeah. again. Like that's mm -hmm. not. No. So like the whole the reason I like the abductive approach is because it allows at the gate that theists and atheists can explain all the data. So it's it's mm -hmm. the doubt. I've never doubted. I've explicitly said I don't doubt that you can explain the data. Um, the question is just like who can explain it more simply and is it a more natural prediction of you know, just evolution by natural selection and an indifferent nature, or by, uh, you know, an omnipotent, omniscient, morally perfect designer of nature, plus a bunch of other auxiliary hypotheses that try and maybe don't succeed in even making it, like, you know, even plausible. But I mean, there's nothing you've said that seems logically incoherent to me. So it's like, these are possible explanations. Mm -hmm. But like, like I said, that in an abductive case, that just that's not enough. Like it, the, the, sure. the original contention still stands that this is, um, you know, evidence that is better predicted on atheistic models than by theistic models. Yeah, like once again, like my point is, like I just don't think it's strong evidence. Like let's say, like um, we grant like that the evolutionary story is going to happen. Like the probability of that, um, let's say, like indifference, it seems like it'd be like pretty close to one. Um, and then during theism, it may seem like you look at the evolutionary story and you're like, well, this seems pretty implausible. And you start at maybe like 0.1 or 0 0.05. I'm saying like when you look at like different defenses or theodicies, we can raise that level to, I mean, I don't have a number, but probably like I think it, there's good reason to think this would be kind of the story um, given theism as well. Not as high as atheism or sorry, I keep saying, conflating atheism and different, not as high as indifference. Um, but like, I, yeah, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, and to be fair, I kind of use those like interchangeably. By the way, mm -hmm. like maybe that's a bad habit on my part, but like naturalism, atheism, indifference, like they're all subtly different, but mm -hmm. I just kind of use them interchangeably. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, so for Emerson, um, so I don't think I, Zach might have said something best, but like suppose some theist was listening to you talk about the problem of evil and probability on theism, blah blah blah, and then made the charge that you're only you're only um, attacking theism kind of in this big picture sense, you're not really attacking my specific version of theism. So like when you account for like all of my like auxiliary things that I believe, like say Christian theism, like once you, once you account, once you put all that stuff in, then suffering is more expected on my version of theism than just this bare theism. Cause I've seen that, I've seen that kind of objection leveled as well. So I don't know what your particular response to that would be. I mean, my immediate response is just that the more specific and convoluted that your thesis gets, the lower the prior probability becomes. So it's like, you know, you might, like like I said, I've never doubted that you can come up with an explanation for all these things, but the more complicated the explanation becomes, the more things you have to add to it, you know, the, the lower the, the priors, you know? So the reason that we kind of speak on this like general level is, is, you know, to avoid that as much as possible. But yeah, so it's like your specific, 
notion of what's going on, which is probably very complicated, way more complicated than what I think is going on, um, is just intrinsically less likely because it is so much more complicated and convoluted. It's so specific. Um, yeah, so on top of, so that's like the general response, but I would want to hear the specifics because like tonight, I haven't, I, I just haven't actually heard why teleological evil, you know, would exist. Um, because again, God is the guy who created this, right? Like he, he did it. And the only explanation I heard that sort of approached, um, you know, okay, well, here's how the designer of nature who's morally perfect would have created teleological evil was the natural order explanation. But I thought I offered a couple good objections to that because God could have created different natural laws that didn't result in teleological evil. And it's actually very easy to imagine this. Um, so I guess I would want to hear the specifics, you know, but um, like I said, it, uh, there's a difference just between saying that like, look, theists can explain the data and then saying that like, okay, this is such a good explanation of the data that it like renders the data more likely on this hypothesis than, than that one. Yeah, um, I, can I, I just want to say a couple of things. Um, one, the auxiliary hypothesis thing. Like, yeah, I have to add things to my like thing. To, like, how do we understand like an evolutionary story with theism? Um, but, like any hypo any worldview is going to have to do that. Like, you can say indifference for the problem of evil, but like you're going to need some sort of like f story on like why there's like on indifference as well. Like, why is there something rather than nothing? Whether it's like an initial state, infinite regress, any of these things. Um, and you're going to have a story of like, well, why is there a universe that allowed for like any sort of evolutionary story to unfold in the first place rather than just like no life, nothing, just stardust. Um, so like any hypothesis is going to have these um, different things. And with regards to like my explanations for like, well, why um, evolutionary evil is like why predation, um, teleological evils, like I did say a noble natural order, but I also said there's other considerations such as like a part of the story of a cosmic chaos into unity, which seems to pr pretty well with Christian theism where we have a chaotic fallen world that's getting woven into a new creation. Um, animals died through predation, they die, but that's not the end, it doesn't have to be the end of the story given theism. Like, um, so I have been trying to give some, obviously we haven't like focused on that too much. Um, so yeah. So at, at what point in the great story does predation disappear? And does like, do like, you know, new creation snakes and mm -hmm. when? I would say new creation. Okay, what does that mean to you? New creation? Well, I'd say that's when we have, like, you know, in Christian theology, like the second coming of Christ, a new heavens and a new earth. Um, and that's when you're going to have the world with, say, like, no evils and such. Um, yeah, and creation's going to be fully redeemed and restored to its original purpose. Like, Michael Heiser has a lot of good, really good work on this. So, yeah. Uh, but at no point is this process leading to that. Like, there's no, uh, like, it sounds like God's just going to intervene and then just stop it. Like, the, I don't see how predation is going to lead to that state of affairs. I think the world's becoming a better place. Like, like, like the point is like, um, at least in like this, like this, like this defense of like, um, like a cosmic, like a story hypothesis almost. Um, it's like we have this like chaotic world full of evils and horrificness um, that's getting woven into a better and better place. Um, and ultimately, like at the redemption of like the second coming, that's when it gets into like full gear. Um, so yeah, like predation is a part of this world, um, but it's not forever, you know. Yeah, do you mind if I, you have anything else to say, Emerson? I was gonna ask something else of Zach. Okay. Um, so one of the other questions I had for you, Zach, was, so a lot, a lot of Christian theology, people basically believe that babies go straight to heaven when they die, right? Mm. Something like yeah. that. Um, also that life begins at conception. It's traditionally, it seems like a lot of Christians believe that. But also we, we can take into account certain facts, like, um, I don't know, there's some 
Institute of Health statistic is like 50% of all, you know, can, you know, fertilized eggs end up like spontaneously aborting. I don't know. They're basically, if that's, mm -hmm. if all of those claims are true together, then half or more of heaven's population will be people that did not experience the soul building that it seems to be like the kind of crux of your case. So mm -hmm. I guess what my question with that would be, like, are those, those babies that wake up in heaven, are they forced to love God or are they missing something because they didn't mm. kind of go through the veil of tears and the soul building and stuff like that, that we are going through? Yeah. So there's a few things that could be said here. Um, I appreciate that's a really good question and a really good objection. Um, so first off, I just kind of wonder like, what would a world look like where no one dies young? Like, it, it just seemed like implausible to me. Like, if you're going to have things such as, like, fatherhood or motherhood, like, you're going to have a world where, like, literally everyone makes it to, like, birth and survives to, like, when they can actually, like, make, like, truth claims and such. Like, I just don't, like, I don't see, like, a plausible world like that. Um, but then furthermore, like, um, I don't think soul building ends in this life. Like, I don't think I just, like, I was, I was referencing my friend um, that I knew um, who died four years ago today. Like, um, he died at 18 years old. I don't think his soul building just ended. Like, that's it. Like, I think soul building is a continual process that will continue on in heaven. Um, so I don't think soul building ends. Um, and like, surely like an all powerful God would have a contingency plan. Um, like, for example, like if there is an afterlife, children can use um, their suffering or like to, in this life um, to produce greater goods in the next life or like um, with people that are like, you're talking about like embryos and stuff, like if they're humans, um, which like, you know, Christian theology really tends to make the case that it is like, I, like I see many plausible ways God could also help them continue their soul building. Um, so it's a really good question. Do you have anything to add Emerson? Um, well, I actually had a, a, I wanted to take another stab at explaining the argument. Um, I was just thinking about this because I still want to defend the, you know, the contention of the debate, you know, because um, Zach is saying that, like, well, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Are you saying that this is that evil can be like evidence against God, just not strong evidence? I would agree. Yeah, that's what I, it's like. I'm saying like the probability of certain evils once you like your, your things in might would be one. But like, but given theism, like we have reason to think that like there'd be a high, not like as high as indifference, but like there'd be a pretty high reason to think that there would be certain evils. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So. So let me try just one more stab and then I'll, I'll drop it. But since it's like the main topic of the debate, I think I can like bring it back to this. And so mm -hmm. the, um, so I have to go on a small tangent about teleology versus teleonomy, tele teleonomy. Um, are you familiar with that distinction? No. It's, um, so my friend Ozymandias Ramses II has a couple of videos on this topic for anyone listening who might be interested, but um, philosophers of biology and biologists have done some philosophical groundwork in trying to um, make it so that we can, so naturalists can coherently speak about design in nature, because you look out at design or you look out at nature and it seems like things are designed for things like there's function in nature, like, you know, my teeth are for chewing. You know, like there's purpose and function and, um, you know, typically we take that as basically synonymous with design. So sometimes people will say, oh, no, it's just the appearance of design. And, you know, obviously what they mean is it's the appearance of teleological design. But uh, what Ozzy pointed out, you know, these philosophers and scientists have, have done is that you can just as a biologist speak about design without embarrassment or qualification because the design you're talking about is teleonomic design and not teleological design. So, you know, natural selection is a designer of sorts. It's just an impersonal designer without any foresight. So teleological design would be like a conscious agent with foresight making things um, the way that it wants it to be made. And then teleonomic design would be this like impersonal force um, that is nonetheless creating 
function and purpose out of previously non-functional, non-purposive um, matter. So, so um, with that distinction in mind, we can look out at the way that things are designed in nature. Um, and some of these things are designed to ends that are bad, that cause suffering, you know, and like they cause suffering of agents that are not rational, that are not moral creatures, can't have moral responsibility. Um, they can't grow, you know, like, and um, they can't be made better unless you add this, you know, these like other hypotheses about like their growth continuing, you know, into the, into the afterlife. Um, so what that means is that, you know, we, we have to infer what kind of designer is behind the, uh, you know, the uh, venom of the short-tailed shrew or the like teeth and claws of lions or, um, you know, the sea lamprey or, or what have you. So we have to infer what kind of designer. I'm saying that it's an indifferent designer. So that's why there's all the suffering. There's all this pleasure and good stuff too. But like the designer is natural selection. It's amoral, it's indifferent. That's why you have this, as David Hume said, strange mixture of good and ill that we observe. Whereas on the other hand, the other hypothesis is that there's an omnipotent, omniscient, morally perfect um, designer of nature who created all those things I just mentioned. So the question is, which would be a better inference to make? So what I'm saying is that in order to make that other inf inference, even like a, a thing that would even occur to you to do, you have to add all these other things. Okay. So like, Whereas just going from the data that I'm appealing to, to the kind of designer that I'm talking about, it's just a straight inference. It's a very rational inference to look at teleological evil and think, well, the designer must have been indifferent. You know, I don't think it was a malevolent designer because there's also good stuff, but you know, indifference does make sense of what we see. Um, whereas like a, you know, a perfectly, a supremely benevolent designer, uh, you know, if we're trying to infer that from teleological evil, that's just a bad inference. It's not like an emotional thing. It's just, it is an irrational inference to make. And in order to make it make sense, you have to add all these other hypotheses. So that is just another way of saying the same thing that I was saying at the beginning. So saying that it is a bad inference to go from teleological evil to a morally perfect, omnipotent, omniscient designer of nature is the same thing as saying that this evidence, teleological evil, strongly favors indifference over theism yeah so i mean i've talked a lot i don't think indifference um I, I i totally understand where you're coming from and i think we're just speaking past each other um i'd love to actually because in my opening statement i gave these four different like people um so when i when i think a strong evidence it should be something that like i mean obviously it's, it can depend on the person but move someone from somewhere to somewhere else um so can we just run through these four people and like um maybe think like after like in your mind like where should they be left on like the landscape of like theism to atheism um sure sure but i just want to plant the flag though that that would be a terrible inference to make from teleological evil to a supremely benevolent designer of nature that would be a bad inference so that's another you have to add other stuff to make that inference even make sense and even then and then you're gonna you have to do the same thing with a bunch of other things with indifference which is why i don't know i don't I, I don't have to add a single thing no, with, you're right with regards to like the evolutionary story. Um, yeah, but, like, but then you, change, the and then you the say, well, place. why is there something rather than nothing? That's not no. pertinent to no. the... I'm just saying indifference doesn't predict any... Like indifference doesn't predict that there'd be something rather than nothing. That's all I'm... And we can say like add an auxiliary hypothesis where there was an initial state or something. Like that's the whole point of like Van Engelen criticizing indifference is it doesn't predict anything in the beginning. Sure, it can get... Once we get into specific things, um, but like 
indifference has to add a bunch of auxiliary hypotheses as well as we try to well, like, not, get a full I'm not story. talking about like the a broad, all-encompassing mm -hmm. metaphysical worldview. Yeah, I'm talking I know about you are. one mm -hmm. line of evidence, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm agreeing with you. I'm just saying that like indifference doesn't explain that much. That's all. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, we should. I think we should probably move past that because it seems like we're going in circles. Um, um, you wanted to go to the people that yeah, uh, so, have different states. Oh yeah, yeah. I could pull up the slide if you want. That might be the easiest way. Um, I'm not going to try to like debate. I'm just curious, like what Emerson thinks. Like, um, so like pull, I just pulled up the slide again. Um, so let's say like on a scale of zero to one, like Joe's 0.9, Susan's 0.8, Tyler's 0.7, and Sophie's 0.5. Like, like where's after considering the argument from evil. Like, where do you think these people should be? So I think that um, I mentioned this actually in my uh, recent episode about why I'm an atheist in the first place, but I think that um, justification is person-based. So I think that, you know, I see that, you know, you have the, um, you have the, here, I'm trying to pull up exactly what I said, but um so I see that you have like the different credences there, but that's really not enough information because, you know, mm -hmm. whether one is, so here I'm quoting a uh, Joe Schmidt here, whether one is justified in accepting an argument as a function of a whole concatenation of factors that are individual specific, one's priors, one's expectations on various hypotheses, one's seemings, one's life experiences, the books and articles and videos one has watched, one's body of testimonial evidence, etc. We each occupy a unique position on the grand epistemic landscape. So it's like just giving the credences, like that's, you know, useful information. And I'll like, I'll try to answer, like, I'll try to like play along a little bit. No, we can have a better, I have a better idea. Cause I, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, so like at one point, Emerson, you were a Christian. Um, um, so you were like, you believed all the stuff. Like, let's say like, um, you just, you just like you're Emerson. You just watch this whole debate for the first time. You're learning all this stuff. Like this is Christian Emerson, who's maybe like 0.9 confident that God exists. Um, where where would Emerson or where should Emerson be after like considering this debate? Well, I mean, I was more like 0.999 confident that God exists, <laughs> okay. but um, <laughs> but I didn't I didn't have a very good way of assessing metaphysical hypotheses at that point. But um, where would I walk away after this debate? Well, um, or where should you walk away? Where should you walk away in your mind? Um, well, I, definitely my credence should be lowered quite a bit because mm -hmm. I, I mean, I hadn't thought about if if I hadn't thought about like evil and animal suffering and specifically teleological evil, I don't even think it's a matter of disagreement that like evil should lower your credence in theism. Like, it, I, clearly that is the case as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like, but how much should it, which is your question. And mm -hmm. like I said, yeah. that is just like, that's so relative to the person and like mm -hmm. the specific information and background understanding that they're working with like what have they what do they know about this debate to begin with so it's hard for me to get in my head from like 10 years ago and like because i just didn't know anything i never thought about this <laughs> so like so um well let me can i, I tell know, you yeah. i can tell you like my, me like so like i'm a theist um i don't like put it's hard to put numbers on like where you are on belief like but say like um like putting my confidence like in the existence of God at say like let's just say like 0.9 like I think like at least for me like after considering the argument from evil like I see it as like yeah it's plot like I see I see your point like it's kind of what you'd expect if you assume these things are true like given um indifference but like given these I'm like there are these plausible reasons so I'd go to like maybe like 0.8 or 0.85 like I don't think it's strong because I don't think you're gonna like I don't think it should really move any like a Morian shift worry like I don't think people should like have this like Morian shift because of the problem of evil and if you shouldn't 
like I wonder if it's strong evidence. Strong evidence. It's hard because like it's so person based, like you said and quoted Joe on. Um, right. So like, like the I don't kind think of Christian that. I was, I didn't have any of the um, like theodicies that like you've you've spent a lot of time thinking about the problem of evil and different theodicies mm -hmm. and stuff. Whereas I really hadn't like the to the extent that I had encountered it, it was just sort of like pastoral type answers like what would you say to someone who's going through a hardship not really like something that actually answers something like animal suffering um so yeah it's just like i said it's it's kind of a hard question to answer but i think it should lower your credence a little more than 0.5 like i said like quibbling over like specific numbers is probably not the most productive way to spend mm -hmm. time but like I, I feel like there are certain things that should have that are because you actually could uh put in some artificial numbers here to see like, well, how unexpected is this on mm -hmm. uh, theism? And then you could like run the probability calculus and just like spit out a specific number where if your credence is 0.9, and if you think that say that like this uh, piece of evidence is like, I don't know, 10 times as likely on atheism than on theism, which is conservative, then that you can calculate exactly how much that should alter your credence in theism. Um, so really it comes down to, you know, you, you would have to assign, like, you'd have to plug some kind of number into like how much more expected is this particular line of evidence on theism than on, you know, rival hypotheses. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I agree with you. I just like, to me, like, um, like for, for, like for evidence to be strong, it would have to like shift someone a significant like way, like um, say like, like that's just kind of like my points. Like, I'm like, sure, like, we can say that evil is initially implausible given theism, but when you look at things such as, like, um, like different, like, reasons or theodicies that I've, like, kind of presented, it's like, well, it's not actually as implausible as we once thought. So it really, um, maybe it counts as some evidence, but it's not, it's not much. That's, that's my contention. And, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm happy to, like, you know, leave that there, but I just think that you'd have to answer, like, how much more expected is this? Because given how little it moved, um, basically, it's... I mean, functionally equivalent. Like you, you might, you kind of think that it's just barely more expected on mm -hmm. the hypothesis that God doesn't exist than on the hypothesis that He does. Which, mm -hmm. yeah, like I said, you, you're gonna have to lean that way no, no matter what. Like if you're assessing this in like some kind of objective way, that like this is obviously more expected on the hypothesis that God doesn't exist. And like you're pointing out, like, but how much? So mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I just think that it's yeah. Obviously, I disagree, and I think it's much higher mm -hmm. than that. I mean, I can't like convince you that this isn't actually a problem. No, it is a problem. <laughs> um, um, yeah, yeah, it's a problem. And I, I to just to be not to be like, just to be blunt, like I just I haven't actually heard a good explanation of animal suffering or specifically teleological evil such that I would like that it's that is clearly like a better explanation on theism or that it really alters that initial. Um, you know, assessment, but, you know, we've talked about this like 10 times. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think any like defense or theodicy is going to make it just as expected on indifference. I'm just saying that like with things such as like um, soul building for animals in the afterlife and the purpose that like having a reason like why God would use an evolutionary process, like these things aren't as unexpected on theism as you'd expect. That, that's that's my contention. But, sorry, Dustin, I keep interrupting you. No, you're good. I'm just, it's hard to try to find like a way to like insert myself <laughs> occasionally into, into the conversation. <laughs> Um, so I was just saying, because I know you got to you got to wrap up a little bit in a little bit, Zach. I know you had to go pretty soon, but so let me, yeah, yeah. Um, let me. There's a, I asked you two questions. So let me ask Emerson a second question too. I'm going to create a Frankenstein monster of animal af afterlife and skeptical theism altogether. <laughs> um, so, but I, but I think this does need to be addressed a little bit because even, even if it's not Zach's prefer, well, it's, it's it's kind of has to do with animal afterlife, which he brought up, and it, it kind of takes a skeptical theism move about that. So so. 
why can't why couldn't it be the case that there's some reason that you don't understand how it could be the case? So let's say a lion, you know, why couldn't a lion for a lion express virtues like courage for what it means to be a lion, or like protect its young, or like whatever, you know? So from the perspective of a lion, and then you know, it seems implausible on, on the surface to you that it seems like animal afterlife seems implausible to you because you can't imagine how they're growing, you know, morally in in this life. And so I guess the skeptical part would be, you know, isn't that too big of a leap? Because couldn't you imagine for, for what it's like to be a lion or what it's like to be like a beaver or whatever, they could be, you know, expressing virtues within those narrow contexts and then in an afterlife kind of come to see how it all, you know, work together or whatever. So I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Um, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I fail to see how a beaver is like having, you know, personal growth or something like, um, I'm not sh exactly sure how to seriously answer that. Cause like, they just don't have, like, even if they do behave in a way that we would say is courageous or something or like <laughs> virtuous in some way, they don't think of it that way. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, they just, they don't seem to uh, have the capacity for like soul building in, in the way that humans do, you know, like, um, I don't reject like the coherence of like the soul building explanation in some cases for humans. It's just like, it, it doesn't see, I don't see how it could apply to animals. Even if you add an afterlife without just like changing their nature, because they're just going to be just as, you know, instinctual and unreflective. And, you know, like I said, it's, it, there's a tension here with the, just ordinary view that animals are not morally responsible for things. Like a, a lion is not guilty of murder when it kills something. So it's like, if you want to start saying it's capable of soul building and like moral reflection and things like that, then it seems like you'd have to give that up. That seems very counterintuitive. Um, and it seems like if you want to account for this in an animal afterlife, um, uh, you just, you'd still have to change their nature. But again, this, I mean, just to go back to the core point here, like this is, I've never said that this is like logically incoherent or that it couldn't be the case that this is mm -hmm. true. It's just that this is very implausible on several grounds. I mean, I can't imagine how many Christians would actually sign on to this picture that we're talking about right now. And it's also just way more complicated, way more metaphysically profligate than um, like a more bare bones explanation. So it's just like the more you add to the specificity of a hypothesis, the lower the prior probability is. Um, so that's, there's constantly this trade-off of like, you want to explain as much as you can with as little as you can. And like, I mean, you can explain anything with, if you just have this unlimited, you can just add as much as you want. It doesn't have to be simple at all. Well, yeah, then you can explain everything. And it'll be like, I have a very specific explanation of every single thing in the world. Yeah, but it's the most metaphysically profligate, least simple explanation of all time. So it's like, there's this trade-off between explaining as much as you can with as little as you can. So the more that you add to this, the more that you add an afterlife for beavers where they're suddenly capable of moral reflection, you're just really lowering the prior probability of these explanations and making them less plausible because you're adding to it. Um, but also, yeah, I just, I don't know. It just seems so weird. <laughs> the idea of like an animal afterlife. Oh, and I never really got an answer to the question of like, so you're like an animal universalist then, Zach, or or what? Um, I see it as plausible. I don't know. Like, like once again, I'm just trying to poke holes because that, that I see it as my job. So, um, I still, I'd love to respond to that just like for a minute. Um, so like, yeah, like I'd agree that like lions and beavers and snakes, like they're not morally responsible. Like I agree. Like the, the point of like if you look at like Trent Dougherty's story is that like say like 
we need this evolutionary story. Like, as I've tried to argue, like we need this evolutionary story um, for some sort of like purpose. There's like, there's a purpose in this evolutionary story. Um, so if we grant that, well then um, obviously there's going to be these sufferings, assuming they exist, um, which seems pretty obvious. Um, well, what's the problem with God um, allowing an after, say in like an afterlife, even a, um, for these animals to say develop in a way where they could come to understand and appreciate their sufferings and realize their role in like the cosmic story, so to speak. Like there's nothing like you have to add an hypothesis, sure, given theism, but like we're like we all have to do that at different points. Like like if we're looking at like um like this is one of the points where like atheism explains it out or better, but theism can explain it, not as well as atheism, but they can explain it in the same way as like atheism can explain, say, consciousness or personal experience as well. They can explain it, but maybe not as well. Um like it's, it's the same thing we have to do. And I'm, I'm just saying like, it's not strong, ev it's evidence, but it's just not strong because there are reasons and we, we can put this together in a theistic way. So that's my, that's my point. Um, I forget there's something else I was gonna say, but yeah, that's fine. All right. I mean, is there anything else we want to go over before we before we end? Because I, I just wanted to you know give you guys a couple questions from me as well, but do you guys have anything else you want to resolve? No. I just want to say that I hate skeptical theism. <laughs> I just want to say that I am not a fan of skeptical theism. So I think at least we can agree on that. I think we're all in agreement. Well, this has been fun. Um, thank you for coming on and doing this debate. Maybe I'll do this again in the future. Uh, hosting debates is a new thing for me. So, but I'll, I'll, I'll end the broadcast. We can talk a little bit after this, but just for the sake of the audience. Uh, thanks for coming on. Appreciate the time. Thanks. Thank you.